0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. If you've listened much to Spirit in Action, you know that we do not feature the flash-in-a-pan, excitement-of-the-moment issues and topics. In fact, I would say that our purpose is very much in opposition to that kind of thinking. Personally, I try to stay rooted in the eternal, to be focused on the big picture, and, at the same time, to live as if I were going to die tomorrow, while learning as if I was going to live forever. That last statement, by the way, is a paraphrase to a statement of Mohandas K. Gandhi, not my own, but it is an ethic I embrace and I try to live up to. The point is that I'm very reluctant to just jump into the 24-7, 365 news cycle, because I think it is adrenaline-fed, not content-conscious. Still, of course, the issues of the moment have their place in the big picture, and we're going to look at some of that today as we have Peterson Toscano and his guests sharing relative to COVID-19 and the climate crisis. This fits for me as part of Spirit in Action because we'll be looking at this moment in the big picture. Again, it's so easy to get lost in the urgency, crisis, and fear of the moment that we'll fail to see that the steps we take today will affect a little ways or even or especially seven generations down the road. And I believe that we need to be present today, living our life fully in the here and now, at the same time that we are conscious of the broader journey we are on. Hence, the Gandhi quote. Before we get to Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio, I want to share with you a few of my thoughts and observations about the place that we're in the midst of with the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that the moment is fraught with both over- and under-reaction, and that every minor miscalculation may send us careening off into the ditch or over a cliff. There are voices screaming from all sides that we are doing too little and too much, that stay in place is traumatic and going to crash our economy, and that the unprepared and unfortunately delayed response from the U.S. government has guaranteed that we'll have thousands or maybe up to millions of unnecessary deaths. While absolutely not dismissing the issues of the alarmists from either side, I absolutely dismiss the fear and frantic mindset. Yes, I, and we, may die tomorrow, and I want to be ready for that. But I also ask myself what I am doing in the context of the big picture. I want to talk about a few of the things I am observing in the days of COVID-19, And I want to peer a bit into the possibilities for the future. This will be far from complete because we do want to get to Peterson Toscano's look at the crisis of COVID-19 and of climate change. But please bear with me. The potential deaths from the virus could have been, or still could be, immense if it's like the Spanish flu of 1918. A flu that was communicable all over the place in a time with inadequate health care supports and a significant percentage of the population gravely ill, the devastation could be, could have been horrible. I think that the numbers for the Spanish flu were about two-thirds of a million Americans dying, but a total of 20 million deaths worldwide. Scale that up due to a lot more people on the planet these hundred years later and much, much greater mobility with planes, ships, cars, highways, eating out frequently on and on and the potential for death was enormous. But we also have much better medical care techniques, methods and equipment than a century ago. We have respirators, antibiotics, x-rays and so much more. But this is not an attempt to look at the technology but a look at the human and lifestyle components of today's response. So given that a worst-case scenario might involve the deaths of a few percent of our population, of course there is a crisis and a great danger to be avoided. And in the best-case scenario, we've got this. It isn't nearly that bad. No worse than the usual flu season. So why blow the economy and our freedoms out of the water, right? Again, We don't really know about the details, the things that will determine how bad or how good this grows. But this, I can assume, will happen based on human nature. If a very large number of deaths happen, a large share of the population will shout, Why didn't you act more decisively, more forcefully? I knew that you should have. And that will include the people who are against, right now, major actions. If, however, this is well-contained, a goodly share of the people will shout, Why did you take away my freedoms and trash the economy? It wasn't that big a deal. So what I'm saying is, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I'm especially interested in the side effects, particularly the whole stay-at-home thing. I know many people are fearful and frustrated, and I certainly share some of those emotions. But I find myself musing about some other possibilities. For example, what if all of this stay-at-home results in a drastic drop in carbon in the atmosphere and of pollution in general, such that we have a different effect on climate change and on air quality and the health of those breathing the air? What if? What if the beleaguered plants and animals of our planet thrive in this time, both with the cleaner air and with fewer people rushing down the roads and without the trash and pollution spewing at the rates that we've become used to. So what if? What if the overhead expense of our rushing about life, like the wear and tear on the roads, all the massive employment needed to supply 24-7 whatever-you-want-at-any-moment culture, what if that ends up reducing all the spending we so frantically do. What if people find out that they like not being on a treadmill and they like having more time in their homes and with their kids? And what if they find that it really is better and a richer life to not be so absorbed with more, more, more? And what if there is a change that continues after the crisis point is passed, and more people take walks, wake to the rhythm of their biological clock in nature instead of the screech of an alarm? Just think, what if? And what if people learn to appreciate their friends and their hugs and their touch of the community? What if teachers and medical people And the people in service industries end up getting the recognition and appreciation they deserve for their work. What if we end up valuing the really important things in life and giving less of our absorption to the distractions and the addictions that are part and parcel of treadmill living? I'm looking at this crisis as a potential learning experience, an opening to vital, rooted, present, insightful living. I'd love to hear from you as we live this precipice moment. But right now, I want to turn the mic over to Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. All of his podcasts are hosted on the Nordenspiritradio.org website, and every three months, Peterson acts as guest host for Spirit in Action. And the next one for that is still more than a month down the road. But this episode of his podcast clearly speaks to the crisis of the moment and to the ongoing crisis of our climate. It seemed that today would be a particularly good time to look at the big picture of dealing with crisis. I strongly believe in all the work that Peterson Toscano does, not only Citizens Climate Radio, but also the Bible Bash podcast he produces with Liam Hooper and his theological thought and work and all of his creative and theatrical work, a bit of which you'll taste in today's episode. The point is, Peterson Toscano does good for the world, and he is great at doing it. Here he is.
1: Today's episode will be different from previous ones. This is, of course, a podcast about climate change and climate solutions. But the issue on most everyone's mind right now is coronavirus or COVID-19. We are witnessing a massive social and political transformation as we respond to the outbreak of this virus. Individuals have rapidly and radically changed their behaviors from washing hands to self-isolating. Federal agencies and local authorities are attempting to stop the spread of this disease. We see in real time how quickly and effectively we can adapt to a crisis. We also are discovering where we have failed to anticipate and respond to a catastrophe we did not fully imagine. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to episode 46 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, March 27, 2020. In the art house, you will hear an original radio drama. Survivor Generations 2165. We travel to the future and look back to the past to on earth inspiration for us today. But first, I am thinking about the many connections between the coronavirus and climate change. As we watch this drama rapidly unfold, what can we learn about our own climate work? How is the coronavirus outbreak similar to climate change and how is it different? My brain feels too small to make all the connections I am sensing, so I contacted three incredibly smart and informed people. Each one is deeply engaged in climate work and resiliency. Each one is a serious thinker who, through their training and experiences, comes to a discussion about coronavirus with tremendous knowledge and insight. You will hear us discuss resiliency or adaptation. In doing so, we consider three questions the coronavirus raises for those of us concerned with climate change. First, what roles do federal, state, and local governments play when preparing for and responding to a major crisis? Second, in considering new threats we never experienced before, what role does imagination play? Third, and what about empathy? What role does it play when making decisions that affect everyone, including the most vulnerable? To discuss all this and more, I bring together a panel of experts. You will hear from Dr. Natasha DeJarnett, a regular on our program. Dr. DeJarnette is the Interim Associate Director of Program and Partnership Development at the National Environmental Health Association. In previous episodes, she has helped us better understand public health issues and climate change. Whether she's discussing environmental racism and pollution, the illnesses afflicting coal miners in Appalachia, or mental health in a time of climate change, Dr. D. Jarnett provides well-sourced, grounded information. She presents it in a way that everyday people like me can easily understand. Also joining us is Leonardo Martinez-Diaz the director of the Sustainable Finance Center at the World Resources Institute. He leads the center's work to help drive finance into activities that promote sustainability and that combat climate change. He previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy and Environment at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And we welcome Alice C. Hill, a Senior Fellow for Climate Change Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. She comes with wisdom, thoughtful analysis, and experience to share. As a climate change resilience expert, Alice believes we possess the tools needed to respond to the impacts of climate change. Over 10 years ago, she joined the Obama administration as senior legal counsel to Homeland Security Director Janet Napolitano. I initially started a conversation with Alice and Leonardo about the book they co-authored. It's called Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. But as I spoke with them, the coronavirus outbreak loomed larger and larger. We were seeing an immediate need for resiliency and adaptation. These two terms are often interchangeable. But in the USA, the word adaptation does not always go down well. Leonardo explains that while for some, adaptation carries political baggage...
2: For other people, the idea of adaptation conveys the concept that we can just adapt to climate change, that if we just make these changes, that we can live with it and sort of keep going as if nothing had changed fundamentally.
1: In their book, they decided to use resiliency instead.
2: Uh, a lot of people understand what that means, the ability to absorb some of the impacts, the ability to recover from the impacts and to bounce back from, from those uh, disasters. So I think it's a, it's a term that, that is sort of more neutral and, and that most people can understand from local government to business to civil society.
1: Alice shares with us her definition of resiliency.
3: When I joined the National Security Council, one of the things we considered is whether we should try to work towards a single definition of the word resilience And we concluded that there were multiple definitions that the federal government had already issued. And we decided that, or I decided, that I could spend my entire time that I was in the administration trying to define this word in a way that was satisfactory to all the agencies. So rather than do that, I decided it was more important that we actually embark on making policy The rough definition we used was to be able to prepare for, respond, and recover from catastrophic risk. But when it comes to climate change, that means responding to these new types of events that are exacerbated by climate.
1: Now, you may notice an occasional wrinkle or crackle when Alice Hill speaks. Interviewing people remotely comes with some technical glitches. Dr. Natasha DeJornette, a public health expert, sees similarities between coronavirus and climate change. She also views them through an environmental health lens.
4: First, the World Health Organization has called for urgent action on both of these threats to health. Both are affecting health globally, and we're experiencing the health effects locally. And both are connected to environmental health. So both are health emergencies. And though one is moving at a much more rapid pace, and that's coronavirus, that doesn't mean that both don't need our attention in the name of protecting health.
1: Now, obviously, coronavirus is a public health issue, and climate change is definitely an environmental health issue. But how is COVID-19 connected to environmental health?
4: Climate change harms health through a number of impacts, including air quality. And if we focus in on air pollution, there may be an unfortunate link between air pollution and coronavirus. You see, poor air quality can harm our respiratory and cardiovascular systems, and this is through pollution's interaction in our lungs. Harvard researcher Dr. Aaron Bernstein, an expert on environmental health, exposed a potential link in a recent interview for Inside Climate News. He explained that Damage to the lung when breathing polluted air can increase the risk of getting pneumonia or even getting sicker when one gets pneumonia. Therefore, he reasoned that there may be a link with lung damage from pollution and potential susceptibility to coronavirus. Please note, there are many unknowns here. And to my best knowledge, this has not yet been researched, but there's a great and unfortunate opportunity for the research community to investigate further any association between air pollution and susceptibility to coronavirus.
1: Later in the show, Dr. DeJarnett will talk to us specifically about resiliency. I ask Alice and Leonardo to also share similarities and differences they see with coronavirus and climate change.
3: There are a great deal of similarities between the catastrophic risk of a global pandemic as well as climate change impacts.
2: Yeah, the challenge with climate change is that it doesn't have the the time compression element that an, a pandemic does, right? Here we're watching all of these things happen in very rapid speed around the world in multiple countries and over a very short time period. And that really captures uh, human attention. That's maybe why we were built back in evolutionary times to react to the immediate present danger, and this is it. But climate change, because it's so much more complicated and and regional and uh, and gradual, we have a lot of trouble getting our heads around that. But the advantage in some ways of this crisis is that it helps us realize that climate change would have similar impacts, even if they happen to be scattered a bit longer over time. And it helps us realize that there's these cascading catastrophes, right? Once you have people unable to go to work, then you have businesses going under and you have people unable to pay their mortgage, which means you have banks that are uh, suddenly uh, under stress, which means they could collapse and lead on to to more and more consequences. And that's the same dynamic at play with climate change, uh, except it happens at a slightly slower pace. But, you know, this allows us to realize how important it is to put a break into that cascade before it gets too far down the line.
1: In looking at both the virus and climate, deciding who does what is critical to success.
3: What we want with both climate change impacts and a global pandemic is the federal government to provide thought leadership, messaging, basic research, and supplies that have been stockpiled so that the nation is prepared for what we know will occur. The response happens at the local level. It doesn't really happen at the national level. So that means the national government is in a support mode, but that doesn't relinquish the national government, from its responsibility to make sure that those state and local governments are prepared, that they have the necessary supplies, that they have the necessary messaging and guidance about what to do, that they have a chance to learn from each other uh, through the federal government about best practices that have been developed. It shouldn't be up to an individual community to figure out what to do. They shouldn't have to discover the wheel on their own. And that is a fundamental role that the federal government will play for all catastrophic risks going forward because the decisions will have to be made on a very local basis, but they'll need the research, the money, and at times the personnel from the federal government to get the job done.
1: And by not being prepared in advance, any actions end up costing the government and taxpayers much more money. This fact may ultimately help get more conservative lawmakers on board in embracing measures to mitigate climate change.
3: Conservative comes from the word conserve. In earlier administrations, some of the biggest environmental uh, changes come from Republicans. I think it was traditionally part of their platform it was Reagan who did the Montreal Protocol. Uh, it was under a prior Republican administration that we first got the Clean Water Act as well as the Clean Air Act. So this is a long-standing proposition. And I think that for the conservatives, they have a wonderful argument. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to work at the Hoover Institution, a center-right think tank, even though... I'm a Democrat, I was in the Obama administration, is because this is an issue for anyone who is fiscally conservative. The costs of these events, including hurricanes, droughts, wildfires, will quickly overwhelm our economy. It's not sustainable going forward not to prepare. We know that for every dollar we spend preparing for a catastrophic event, we can save $6 or more on average in damages. So preparing makes sense for our purses, and it makes sense in terms of saving lives. I think it's a bipartisan issue, but I think it really plays to the heart of conservatives who view themselves as uh, guardians of the public treasure.
1: Adequate and thorough preparation does not only save money, it also saves lives. As a child, Leonardo lived in Mexico City and experienced the 1985 earthquake.
2: And uh, it was a huge catastrophe killing thousands of people. And what I saw at that point was not only how a natural disaster can upend kind of civilized life overnight, but also how society can come together very quickly and and work itself out of the uh, disaster and so at that point in Mexico the government uh, was famously inept and and absent really in the early hours and days of the uh, after the earthquake and it was civil society that had to handle the burden of of the recovery and so I think that experience really stayed with me 32 years I think it was to the day an earthquake again hit Mexico City but the number of people who who perished was was a tiny fraction And society really had learned a lot in those 30 years. Things had improved in terms of building codes and government responses and early warnings. So it is possible to learn from disaster. And I think that that stayed with me.
1: Learning from past mistakes will help us proceed, plan, and build in new ways. For that, though, we need to engage our imaginations.
3: When it comes to a pandemic, we have suffered from a collective failure of imagination. That's always the thing that's identified after a catastrophic event. It was identified after Pearl Harbor, Katrina, 9-11, and now it will be clear with this that there's been a failure of imagination that things could go so terribly wrong. When it comes to resilience, of course... Uh, we need to prepare for all of these hazards and we need to force ourselves to u- overcome what are usually termed cognitive biases, these defaults that we go to that keep us from imagining what is so big and so unfamiliar.
1: Leonardo talks about availability bias.
2: This problem of so called availability bias, right? The fact that if we can quickly call to mind something, were likely to assume that it is highly improbable and therefore not prepare for it. In the aftermath of 9-11 and the attacks, the government commissioned a group of experts to to figure out why this happened and how to make sure it never happened again. And one of their most more famous recommendations that came out in their famous report was that the terrorist attacks were ultimately a failure of imagination, that the agencies involved and in, in, responsible for keeping us safe had maybe thought about the possibility of of hijacking planes and using them as as weapons, but nobody had really taken that scenario and fleshed it out fully and created a a whole scenario where that could be sort of visualized uh, and then planned for planned against. And therefore, one of the recommendations was the kind of paradoxical idea of institutionalizing or even bureaucratizing imagination, right? So you've got big government agencies, big corporations that are all about process and about predictability, not about imagination, suddenly having to somehow will themselves into being imaginative and creative. Uh, And it's that sort of tension that is one of the the challenges we have to overcome of imagination.
1: Fortunately, we are seeing some examples where people are thinking beyond what they have experienced before. This leads to more resilient building practices. Alice gives us one example. Uh, Lessons Learned in a storm that kept a hospital resilient years later when an unimaginably bigger storm hit.
3: Uh, the Texas Medical Center in Houston, a private facility, was terribly hit during Hurricane Allison and committed to never having that happen again. So it poured money into raising valuable equipment, higher floodproofing entryways. And so during Allison, it lost functionality in virtually all of its hospitals. This is a two-mile square facility. Compare in Harvey, the medical facility only had to shut down one hospital temporarily. The rest of the entire campus was able to continue to operate. And because they had planned so well, personnel knew they needed to get there. So there's a wonderful story of even medical personnel kayaking to work so that they could keep the hospitals running, continue to treat patients. This is very important during a crisis. So when we see these examples of leaning forward and being prepared for something that could be worse than what we previously experienced, it can save a great deal of time, money, expense and even save lives.
1: As we experience larger storms, more and more extreme weather and public health crises that threaten everyone, especially the most vulnerable, we need more than just intelligent planning. We need love, compassion, caring. As our problems magnify, so must our empathy. I asked my three guests about the need to enlarge our empathy.
3: It is a wonderful thought that our empathy needs to be in place, and that we need to approach these issues with greater empathy. I'd never thought of that before, uh, that empathy is critical, but it is, because there will be enormous amounts of suffering. We will see that some people are in harm's way through no fault of their own, and that's why we're all going to have to help each other uh, find successful pathways to deal with climate change impacts. There is a lot of hope. There's a lot of things that we can do now to make sure that everyone can remain in a much safer position. But as you pointed out, we need to focus as well on the most vulnerable in our society because they have fewer resources and uh, less of a buffer to handle the kinds of punches that climate change can sometimes carry. So our ability to understand and try to put ourselves in the position of others will be critical. And hopefully that doesn't take too much imagination. That should be something that we can all exercise to have better outcomes.
1: Dr. DeJornette echoes this point and connects it to the resiliency needed during this time of coronavirus.
4: We are resilient when we work together to help each other to come out even stronger on the other side of a crisis. We're resilient because we support our most vulnerable. For example, folks are working to protect older adults who are quite susceptible to coronavirus. Communities are working to protect children who are dealing with schools that are closed, but those schools may have been the one place they were able to find consistent meals. So people are unifying to ensure that families have food.
0: I'm breaking into this episode of Citizens Climate Radio, featured on today's Spirit in Action show from Northern Spirit Radio. Remember that northernspiritradio.org is the central place for getting in touch with us, with all our programs since 2005, available for your free listening, for linking up with our guests, for offering ratings and feedback, and for donating to support Northern Spirit Radio. We count on your help to make this continue. The thing is that 90% of our media in the United States is controlled by just six corporations. Just let that sink in, and you'll realize why local community radio is so very, very important. So I hope that, first and foremost, you'll support your local community radio station. Do it with your wallet, and your hands, and your voice, media of, by, and for the people. But right now, back to this current episode of Citizens Climate Radio from today's guest host, Peterson Toscano, on today's Spirit in Action. Go ahead, Peterson. I asked Leonardo
1: to humor me with a thought experiment. What if you were to travel to the future, like 150 years into the future, and then look back at the many ways we succeeded in addressing climate change. In looking at all those various methods we transformed society and took on these challenges, from that vantage point, what stands out to him?
2: We could only succeed if we looked after the most vulnerable first, because regardless of all the progress that was done during those years, didn't just stop and and go away. It it still took a toll uh, on on the planet. Along the way, it hit the poorest and the most vulnerable across and within countries first. If we were going to uh, move forward uh, in in this process and survive it, we needed to first focus on on, on those populations, the most vulnerable people, uh, and figure out how to care for them. Because if we didn't, the inequalities that already existed would have become intolerably high. And it would have destabilized political and economic systems. So that's when the world realized that inequality and, and poverty were deeply connected to climate change. And we had to deal with both in order to move forward.
1: How we identify a problem influences the way we approach it. Several politicians, including President Trump, refer to the coronavirus as an enemy we need to attack. With climate change, our enemy is not so clear.
2: During war, we tend to react towards uh, an enemy that is clear, that is uh, tangible, and that is shooting at us, right? And here we're dealing with uh, a much more abstract, difficult, and complicated thing. And so we have to be able to tell a story about how climate change is an enemy that has to be confronted with this kind of wartime mobilization-like effort. And we have to make this uh, enemy, in quotes, as real as possible. It doesn't escape me that the irony, of course, is that the enemy is us in many ways, right? And that we have to figure out how do we use that to, to inspire action.
1: Having a shared enemy, though, may bring about a well-needed political change.
2: But hopefully what comes out of this whole episode is a renewed understanding that we have a shared interest collectively as a country and as a, as a world for survival. And that we are a lot better off collaborating with one another with these transnational threats than we are by trying to go it alone, where ultimately no country can really mount a successful defense to either coronavirus or climate change on its own. So out of this tragedy, we come out with a better understanding of what ties us together and our collective effort to survive. That is something you can use in the politics of climate change. That is something you can harness towards a much more focused discussion about how to change our climate policy. And I think that's ultimately what uh, is really going to to be quite helpful. And hopefully it's something that allows us to push against all these forces of division and sectarianism and and tribalism that we've seen over the last several years and, and can show them for what they are, which is a real obstacle to our ability to survive as a species.
1: Climate resiliency is often about protecting the public and property from extreme weather events. Alice Hill challenges us to embrace climate mitigation as part of this resiliency.
3: I will say the most important resilience policy there is, is to cut our emissions because we will adapt and we will be resilient, but it will be a lot easier if we don't have as much heat to prepare and recover from.
1: Still these days, I find it hard to focus on anything but the current crisis that has upended all of our lives. The impacts of the coronavirus are only beginning to be felt. And unfortunately, there's still a lot more sickness, suffering, and sadness ahead for many of us. Additionally, growing concerns about the economy, unemployment, and political stability alarm many of us. Economists and leaders point out how this current crisis is a gigantic stress test on the banks and the entire world economy. As our leaders decide the fates of citizens and residents, I recognize the coronavirus and climate change are both stress tests of our morals and of our values. We protect the people, places, and things we love the most. Our resiliency plans are guided by our values and by our morals. No doubt, much of the political process includes conflicts and negotiations around some of these. Hopefully, though, when faced with these large existential threats, we will find the common ground we need for our shared survival. I'll end this segment with one more word from each of our guests. Alice Hill is a national security expert. Speaking with her has deepened my own understanding of what national security can mean.
3: For a lot of people, that just means the Department of Defense, the military response. That's national security. National security can mean also diplomacy through, for example, our State Department. It can mean development work, that is, international investments to help overseas communities so that they remain strong and vibrant and can be strong allies to the United States, but also maintain global stability. When it comes to climate change, my feeling is that that definition can be too narrow, even taking the broadest, including the diplomacy and the development, including defense, because it doesn't get at the core of human security. And human security is what is so threatened by climate change. Our livelihoods are threatened. Uh, If you look at agriculture, if you look at fisheries, substantial changes in our ability to grow food and in the movement of fish stocks, and that will have profound effects across the globe. Water access, safe access to drinking water, uh, agricultural water will be affected as temperatures increase. Uh, We're going to see the spread of disease, vector-borne diseases as well as, for example, cholera during flooding. Just our ability to continue to live is challenged in many countries and places very severely by climate change. And that creates security risks that feed into traditional national security risks, but are just threats to human existence.
1: Even with stimulus packages already passed in the USA, India, Singapore, and other countries, likely we'll have more to come. Leonardo considers possible paths forward.
2: Coming out of this pandemic, there's going to be a real need to restart our economy, both in the U.S. and, and abroad. There's going to be the immediate need to get money into people's pockets. But then after that, there's going to be uh, a big stimulus package of some kind here and around the world. We need to make sure that when we start spending again, the government spending, to get the economy going, that we're investing in things that are going to be helping us with climate. Not, not just um, doubling down on, on fossil fuels. We need to come out of this pandemic, making sure we're investing in our future health, avoiding climate impacts and improving air quality and so on, rather than coming out of a disaster, a health disaster, by betting on another health disaster.
1: Dr. DiGernet reminds us that the coronavirus crisis is not the first time we needed to be resilient. We come to this moment with history behind us that can inspire us.
4: Gandhi is quoted for saying the true measure of a society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. This is why we're resilient. And it is this resilience that has accompanied us through so many major health and safety threats. And it will also bring us through the coronavirus pandemic as well as climate change.
1: Many, many thanks to Dr. Natasha DiJarnett, the Interim Associate Director of Program and Partnership Development at the National Environmental Health Association, to Leonardo Martinez-Diaz, the Director of the Sustainable Finance Center at the World Resources Institute, and to Alice C. Hill, a Senior Fellow for Climate Change Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice and Leonardo are authors of the book Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. You can get their book on Kindle and wherever books are sold online, and eventually in bookstores once they reopen. You can find links to my guest in the show notes. Just visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. On the right side of the page, click on the Citizens Climate Radio menu option, then look for episode 46. That link again is citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Now it is time for the art house. We welcome to the art house the climate's Do players with their radio play Survivor Generations 2165. Now imagine you're living in the future. The year is 2165. It is a particularly good time to live on planet Earth. Because of the bold and creative actions taken over a century ago, the impacts of climate change have been decreasing. The infrastructure and responses developed over time protect the public, including the most vulnerable. There's now time to reflect on the past. And as a result, the most popular entertainment of the day does just that. Survivor Generations revisits times of extreme challenges to reveal the resiliency and determination of our ancestors. Sit back, turn on your internal viewing device and enjoy another episode of Survivor.
5: I am Timothy Meadows. Welcome back to Survivor, the world's longest-running television program where we are doing a countdown of the top 20 Survivor generations of all time. Most people do not know about the atrocities faced by the citizens of Leningrad, what we now call Petersburg, Russia. Adolf Hitler rapidly conquered and annexed nations, then set his sights on Moscow. But before he could take the Soviet capital, he first needed to capture Leningrad, the Venice of the North seat a fine culture and the manufacturing centre of the USSR. While never ultimately succeeding in invading the city, Nazi forces surrounded it for nearly three years. Four times a day, they rained down bombs in their devastating blitzkrieg assaults. The Siege of Leningrad, with the death of over one million citizens, became known as the infamous 900 days.
6: Yes, they say it was 900 days. Actually, it was only 872 days. They exaggerate. No, I I know, because I was there. I was just a boy when it happened. Yuri
5: Ivanovich Petrov, born August 23rd, 1930, had just turned 11 years old when the siege began in September 1941. We share with you archival footage from an interview conducted in August of 2001.
6: Growing up I always was a a fat boy, I liked to eat, and that birthday was terrible because although the Nazis had not yet attacked, uh, rationing had already begun and it was very difficult to, to get my favorite foods. And then, right after my birthday... Hitler eyes, well, his forces. It was his belated birthday gift to me. Now, the Nazis, they were very consistent in their attack. Uh, they bombed us four times a day. And, of course, the first thing they attacked was the Badaev warehouse. Uh, this is where we kept all of our food storage, which was stupid. I mean, the officials were warned to protect this. Do they think about the people? No. Gross mismanagement of disaster relief. So then... All we had was the rationings, ugh. And it was not very much, for me as a boy I could get one and one half slice bread per day. But this was not normal bread, it was made with floor sweepings and linseed oil, it was this drippy goopy thing they called bread. And so we had to be creative, we developed a whole siege cuisine. It is amazing what you can do with glue and shoe leather. No, but it was because of the of Warehouse that I began my career as a purveyor of fine foods. After the warehouse blew up, we went, to my friends and I, to see what remained. Nothing. But there we found in the dirt, in the soil, burnt sugar. And we collected this dirty burnt sugar and we packaged it in little boxes and we traded it as a coffee product.
5: With bitter cold temperatures averaging 22 degrees below zero, no gas, electricity or food supplies, along with the daily bombing raids, the citizens of Leningrad encountered a cruel and destructive winter. In January of 1942, over 100,000 people perished. By February, 20,000 died per day. While the citizens starved and froze, the city of Leningrad burned.
6: No, there were fires everywhere, yes, well, of course, because of the bombings, yes, but also, um, we had to stay warm, and people would burn anything, antiques, books, and, of course, sometimes there were accidents and fires. Now my mother, oh she worked so hard, even though she was so thin and often sick, she worked in the factory with the other women, uh, much of the day, and then after work and, and early in the morning she would go out and help dig the anti-tank trenches. And then, all of the waiting on line, she would wait on line forever for the rations, she would carry with her, her a little tin box and in this tin box were our ration cards it was not very much but it kept us alive and it was on February 22nd of that first winter that I returned home, it was already dark uh, I turned the corner and I knew immediately what had happened I saw our building with the empty window smoke coming out like from empty eye sockets and there on the ground was all the debris of the things that the people had thrown out who could not escape furniture and clothing and there among the debris I looked and I found dented and burnt my mother's tin box with our ration cards and I know that at those moments it was that she was thinking of me then the spring came and all of the little green buds appeared and you would find us children eating, eating, Uh, we were so skinny you could not tell if we were boys or girls and then there was this cleaning frenzy I don't know what happened but everyone wanted to clean and then we planted everywhere Uh, they dug up courtyards and sidewalks, overturned tables we planted so much food that by November we had a four month supply Then the symphony began to play again. Yes, they were very tired and hungry, but they would play and over loudspeakers we would hear this. Universities met in bomb shelters and and discussed their dissertations. We refused to be defeated.
5: Stay tuned for the dramatic conclusion of our program as we share with you the greatest survivor generation of them all. The Climate Generation.
1: That was Survivor Generations 2165, performed by the Climate Stew Players. Learn more at climatestew.com. That's stew, like a lentil stew, stew climatestew.com. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Now it's time for our monthly puzzler question. I will give you more time to respond to last month's puzzler. Here goes you're talking to your friend charles charles is concerned about climate change but he doesn't know what we can do about it so you explain carbon pricing as a powerful tool to help us decrease fossil fuel emissions before you can say anything more charles interrupts are you out of your mind did you see what happened in France when they tried that? Those yellow vest protests? It was a political disaster. You really expect that to work here? So, how would you respond to Charles? Send me your answers. Leave your name, contact info, and where you're from. Get back to me by April 15th, 2020. You can email your answers to radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org, or better yet, leave a voicemail of three minutes or less at the following number 518 518- 595 9414. Plus one if calling from outside the USA. That number again is 518 595 9414. And if you didn't catch all that, I'll give you the contact information in a moment. Thank you for joining me for this very special and extra long episode of Citizens Climate Radio. Hopefully, the thoughtful discussion my guests provided have given you food for thought and some guidance as you continue your climate work in an altered social and political landscape. I would really like to hear your thoughts. Please feel free to reach me. You can contact me by email, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Or leave a voicemail of three minutes or less at 518-595-9414 plus one if calling from outside the USA. That number again is 518-595-9414. Let me know if it's okay to share your thoughts with listeners. If you found this particular episode helpful, please feel free to share it with others through your social media, emails, and word of mouth. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Monterano, Flannery Winchester, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Perra. We have a Facebook group page, and you can join the discussion by going to facebook.com groups slash Citizens Climate Radio. To join, though, you will be prompted to answer two questions. You can follow us on Twitter at Citizens That's Citizens, the letter C, radio, at Citizens Radio feel free to tweet at me directly at P2Sun. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org blog to see info about our puzzler and find links to our guest. If you're looking for more discussion about coronavirus and climate change, check out Global Goals Cast. There'll be a promo at the end of the show. It's a climate podcast that I've been listening to and I like a lot. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Please be safe. Let's
0: take good care of ourselves and each other. And thank you for listening. We'll have Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio back as guest host for Spirit in Action in just a month. So look for it and follow our links to Peterson and all of his good work. Thanks to Peterson for today's so very relevant episode. Thanks to you for listening. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action.